All right, time for the message this morning. And we'll be continuing our look at the Trinity. And today is uh, part three of that. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 3. And we'll look at two very familiar verses, verses 16 and 17. John chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. And it says in those two verses, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and commit this time to him. Father in heaven, we thank you once again for this time. We can look into your word and we do thank you that you've preserved it so wonderfully and fully. We ask, Lord, that your your spirit would be our teacher this morning, that I would simply be an instrument in your hands, sharing the words you've given to me with my brethren who are listening this morning. I pray that uh, if there is any here this morning, Lord, who is listening uh, to this message, that aren't saved, that don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, that you would uh, break through to their heart and they would come to know him as their Lord and Savior. We commit this time to you. We thank you once again. And we ask that you be glorified in our midst. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Today, as I've said, we look at or continue our look at the doctrine of the Trinity. Last week, my message was focused on um, how God reveals himself as a Trinity in and through creation. We saw all three members of the Trinity active in creation. Um, so that you see in the beginning God, and then we had God creating through the Word, and we found that that Word was Jesus Christ. And then we have the Holy Spirit, the the creative uh, power of God, uh, hovering over the water. We saw last week how God's very name uh, showed that He is a a combination, that He is is a unity uh, in plurality. We saw the very Word for God was um, what meant, meant the same sort of thing. We saw even the word one was a compound word uh, that was used uh, in other places or the same word was translated in other places to mean something along the lines of something like a, a team or a family or something uh, like that. I concluded our message last week with the act of salvation and how it's like God creating once again. So he's taken that which is dark and void and he's made something new. And the Bible indeed says that we are new creatures or new creations in Christ. When someone is saved, God has made them a new creature. One of the central themes of the Bible is the fall of man. His sin was a fatal decision which brought death not just to Adam and Eve, for those two original uh, ones that sinned, but to the rest of mankind for the rest of time until now. Because of his spiritual death, man became blind to his own dilemma. Because he got used to being and living in sin, and because he uh, rejected the notion of God, uh, the Bible says that he became completely blind to what was happening to him. And so generation after generation, we have found that mankind has been drowning in an ocean of sin. And as a result, many, many have gone to hell. But because of his great love, 
God chose to save mankind from this terrible uh, and invisible disease. Compared to the coronavirus, which kills about 3 to 4% of those who get infected, which is a terrible number in itself, sin has a 100% death rate. Everyone is infected and everyone dies as a result of it. Sin is indeed a terrible thing, but God has provided the cure. Even though God was the one who was the offended party, the one whom we sinned against, God chose because of his love to save us. He chose to become our savior. Even though we despised and rejected him, he came looking for us to save us. We may not, have seen, may not have seen the sin and the problem that we had, but he did. God made clear from the very beginning of the Bible that he loved us and chose to save us. I'd like to share some of those uh, passages with you this morning. Passages which reveal the Trinity in that very act, in that choosing to save us and that choosing to actually uh, want to be together with us, God's Trinity is revealed. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 45, verse 21. Isaiah 45, verse 21. What we're going to find today, and my prayer is that, that you um, are able to see, hopefully, what I've, what I've intended uh, to show you and tell you, is that when you begin to read passages in the Bible... The only way they make sense or they can be true is if the Trinity is true. And one thing we know about the Bible is that it's perfectly true. It does not contradict. The Old Testament doesn't contradict the New. Uh, one passage never contradicts another. The Bible is perfect from beginning to the end. And for it to be perfectly true, though, there are some things that can only be true if God is indeed a Trinity. Look at Isaiah chapter 45, verse 21. This is the Lord. This is God speaking. And he says, Tell ye, and bring them near. Yea, let them take counsel together. Who hath declared this from ancient time? Who hath told it from that time? <clears throat> Have not I the Lord? And there is no God else beside me. A, ju a, a just God and a Savior. There is none beside me. Look unto me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is none else. Now, isn't that a beautiful passage of scripture? What an awesome God we serve. We're the sinners, we're the ones who rejected him and chose to go our own, our own way. And God says, look, there's only one of me. I'm the only one. I am just and I am a savior. And look to me if you want to be saved. Just look to me. He is not only a just God meaning that he will bring every sin and crime to ultimate justice because he's the judge, but he's also a saviour and he offers salvation and forgiveness to every sinner who will come to him. Every sinner. Notice he says in verse 21, Tell ye and bring them near. He wants us to come near to him. This is a God ultimately who chose to want to be together with us. And even though we have sinned, he still wants to be together with us and he's found a way to rescue us. 
And only he can do that. Only he can be both just and a saviour at the same time. He found the way to make those two fit together. You see, if he was only just, then every one of us would have to be judged and sent to hell. But he's not just just. He is a saviour too. He found a way to save us and satisfy his own justice. And we know that he did that through Jesus Christ, his only begotten son. God is both just and merciful at the same time. So how many saviours are there? Well, he says very clearly, there is no other saviour beside him. There is no other one. He says, look to me, all the earth. I am the only saviour. It is he and he alone who saves mankind. And he calls out to the, to the ends of the earth for all to be saved. For those who have experienced his great salvation, for those of us who understand uh, his forgiveness and have been restored by him to that relationship, we have been called now to become his witnesses to the world. To tell everyone else about what we have and what we've experienced and what we now know God to be like. Look at what he says in chapter 43. Now, just go back a couple of chapters in Isaiah and look at verses 10 to 11. So turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 43, verse 10. Look at what he says. He says, "You, Ye are my witnesses, saith the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen that ye may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, neither shall there be after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and beside me there is no Saviour. I have declared and have saved. I have showed when there was no strange God among you, Therefore, ye are my witnesses, saith the Lord, that I am God. We're called to be his witnesses. We're called to tell the world that there is one God and that there is no saviour apart from him. God says he is the only saviour of the entire world. He says, I, even I am the Lord. And beside me, there is no saviour. So how many saviours are there? There is only one. Who are we witnesses of? God. We are witnesses. We are called to be witnesses that God is the saviour and there is only one. Now, turn with me to the New Testament now, because the New Testament confirms that, that God is the saviour. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3 says, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Saviour. In chapter 4 of 1 Timothy, he also says in verse 10, For therefore we both labour and suffer reproach, because we trust in the living God, who is the Saviour of all men, especially of those that believe. So God has clearly claimed all credit for being the Saviour of mankind for actually doing the saving. God claims the credit, both in the Old and the New Testament. But then, how do we reconcile God, God taking the credit alone if he sent Jesus to do the suffering and dying on the cross? Can God take credit for someone else 
who did the hard and the heavy lifting? Surely he could not take full credit if he sent someone else to do the work. On top of that, doesn't the Bible also contradict itself then? If it calls someone else the saviour? I mean, God says, I'm the only saviour. What happens where the Bible says, if the Bible calls someone else saviour as well? I mean, he did say he's the only saviour. He did take full credit for it, didn't he? How do you explain these verses then? When Jesus was born, in Luke chapter 2, verse 11, the proclamation the angels made, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Saviour, which is Christ the Lord. Now, hang on a sec. Angels haven't got it wrong, have they? Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. He says, For our conversation, our life is in heaven. From whence also we look for the Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. Mm. So Philippians saying that Jesus is the Lord and Saviour. Second Peter confirms that again. Second Peter chapter 3 verse 2 says that ye be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Saviour. Jesus. In all of these verses, the Bible declares Jesus to be the Savior. On top of these, God tells his people that they are his witnesses in this world. Do you remember that? So back in Isaiah, God says, tell the world that I am the only Savior. I'm the one who does all the saving. And they are to look to me to be saved. And you're my witnesses Go and tell the world that I am the only Savior. Now, that was back in Isaiah. That was back well before Jesus was born in Bethlehem. But look at what Jesus tells the apostles when he sends them off before he ascended into heaven. Acts chapter 1 verse 7. Turn with me there just for a moment. And I'd like to share these specific words to you. So Isaiah chapter 43 verse 10, God says, Ye are my witnesses, saith the Lord. Now look at what Jesus tells his apostles. And he said unto them in Acts chapter 1 verse 7, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power, but ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost is come upon you, And ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. Now, not only in these two verses do we see the Trinity mentioned. We see the Father having the authority of of times and seasons. We have the Holy Ghost, which gives power to the apostles. But Jesus says, you are my witnesses, starting from Jerusalem, out to Judea, out to Samaria, and out to the edges of this world. Who are we witnesses of? Of Jesus. Now, hang on a sec. What's going on here? These verses can only be reconciled if Jesus... And that Jesus is the Son of God and is God himself. 
and the Trinity is true. You can't have Jesus not being God if God says he's the only saviour. You can't have Jesus claiming that the apostles were going to be his witnesses when God says that we are all God's witnesses. Jesus has to be God himself. Otherwise, the Bible contradicts itself. And how could we trust it then? Well, this is the beauty of the Bible. It never contradicts itself. It always explains itself even more. Just as men have come up with examples of how um, to describe the Trinity. Remember those examples we brought up uh, previously? We may have used water or an egg or electricity or, or a light globe or something along those lines. Um, there are different examples you can use to try to explain the Trinity. Well, God does this himself. He actually brings up an example of the human body. And he uses the, 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 the concept of a body more than once. He does it with the church. And, uh, and, and our brother Alan actually shared that example this morning uh, in his illustration to the children. But go to Romans chapter 12, verse 4 with me, because you'll notice that not only does um, the, the Bible or God give us this example of the body as an example of the church, but later on we're going to find God gives the same example for himself. So Romans chapter 12, verse 4, it says, For as we have many members in one body, which means we have many parts to our body, and all members have not the same office, which means they don't have the same function, so we, being many, are one body in Christ, and every one members one of another. Okay, so God here uses the, the body as an example of what the church is like. The, just as your human body has fingers and hands and arms and legs and toes and head and ears, all these different parts, each one of them has a specific purpose for why it's there. But even though there are many parts to us, they're all connected one together to make one body. So God uses that example for the church, that, that every one of us is important and that we're all connected one to each other. And that's why we, our fellowship with each other should be perfect. That's what God intends for us to be, the picture that he intends for us to be to the world. When we are in fellowship one with another, when the church operates as it should, we look like a body that works properly, not disjointed, not separated, but working together, functioning smoothly. But God also offers this picture for himself, believe it or not. Each member of the Trinity has a role to play, just as we've got different roles in the church. Different people do different things. Each one of us has different abilities, different gifts, but yet we're each there connected intimately with each other to make one body of Christ. The Bible also says that the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, each have a different office. They have different functions that they've given themselves, but each one is intimately connected with the other and form one. Just as we form one church, God is one, but he has made himself a trinity. Remember the word one? It means something that is unified together. That is one in its entity. God provides this example in the Old Testament to reveal himself in this act of salvation. In God's, when God planned to save mankind and the way he's rolled it out, He's revealed himself in this way. Turn to Isaiah chapter 51, verse 9. I'd like to share 
Just one, one aspect of that this morning. Isaiah 51 verse 9. Look at what God says here. Or look at this call to God. Awake, awake. Put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake, as in the ancient days, in the generations of old. Art thou not it that hath cut Rahab and wounded the dragon? Now, let's just stop there for a moment. I'm not so worried about the end of that verse as I am at the, of the beginning. Who's speaking to who here? Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. So it's speaking to the arm of the Lord. This, this call is going to, uh, this, uh, this um, um, uh, calling is actually going out to the arm of the Lord. Beautifully poetic. But you normally don't speak to someone's arm or leg or hand, do we? Why is Isaiah calling on the arm of the Lord to awake, to do as he has done before? Let's see if we can find out. Turn forward to Isaiah chapter 52 and look, look at verses 9 and 10. Now this is speaking about God's salvation here of Jerusalem. Isaiah 52 verse 9 says, Break forth into joy, sing together, ye waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord hath comforted his people, he hath redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord hath made bare his holy arm in the eyes of all the nations. And all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Listen to those words. It's referring to the salvation of Jerusalem. It says that in doing this, in saving Jerusalem, it says that he hath made bare his holy arm. Do you know what that means? Ever rolled up your sleeve to do a job? You know when people uh, do hard work, they, they roll up their sleeves? Well, God rolled up his sleeve here and he revealed his arm to the world. What does the arm of the Lord look like? I mean, where did the world see it? To whom has he revealed this arm? So think of this for a moment. If God is, the picture is like a body, then God's arm that he's rolled up his sleeve has reached into the world to save. Okay, And he's saying this to Jerusalem. Go forward to chapter 53 now. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 1. And this, you probably have a very good understanding of who it's talking about. And you've probably read this more than once. But I want you to understand something. When God rolled up his sleeve and revealed his arm, look at what, who, it's, who it is. Isaiah 53, verse 1 says, Who hath believed our report? I mean, who, who believes this story? This is like amazing. To whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness. And when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. 
Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord hath laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Who hath believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? You all know who this is speaking about here, don't you? What a precious description written over 700 years before Jesus was born in Bethlehem about who he would be and what he would do. This is a description written about the Son of God. Who can believe what God has done? For those of us who were saved, we still struggle to believe it. Who has discovered the very arm of God that has reached down into this world? We have the arm of God himself is Jesus Christ, the Lord and Savior of the world. Jesus is the arm of God that's reached down from heaven to save us from drowning in our own sin. Jesus is what God has revealed to this world when he rolled up his sleeve to pull us out of an ocean of sin. The Apostle John has a parallel passage to this. Who he says, you know, who has believed our report? Who can believe this? To whom of the arm of the Lord has been revealed? Turn to John chapter 12, verse 37. John 12, verse 37. So the God makes himself or has given us a picture of Jesus being like an arm, of his son being like the arm. But see how the, the arm, even though it's a separate thing, is still connected to the one body. John chapter 12, verse 37 says, But though he had done so many miracles before them, yet they believed not on him, that the saying of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spake, Lord, who hath believed our report, and to whom hath the arm of the Lord been revealed. See, Jesus, the, the Apostle John says, Jesus, even though he had done so many miracles, they still didn't believe in him. And that fulfilled this prophecy over here. Who has believed this, this uh, message over here? And to whom hath the arm of the Lord been revealed? Verse 39, Therefore they could not believe, because that Isaiah said again, He hath blinded their eyes and hardened their heart that they should not see with their eyes, nor understand with their heart, and be converted, and I should heal them. These things said Isaiah, Isaiah when he saw his glory and spake of him. Yeah, John realized the truth of this passage. When John witnessed Jesus walking the earth and doing miracles for people, and he saw the love and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and still they rejected him. The Holy Spirit brought that passage to his mind from Isaiah. Who's believed our report? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? That arm is Jesus. 
they still didn't believe him. Even though that arm reached down into our world to save the world, they still did not believe him. But on top of that, John then links us to another passage in Isaiah. When he says that Isaiah said all these things when he saw his glory and spake of him. What is he talking about here? There's only one place in Isaiah when he saw his glory and he spake of him. And that's in Isaiah chapter 6. So Isaiah chapter 6, if you turn with me there, verse 1 to 5, who did Isaiah see? Isaiah saw the arm of the Lord. Isaiah saw God himself. Look at these words. Isaiah 6 1 says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims. Each one had six wings. With twain he covered his face. With twain he covered his feet. And with twain did he, he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door moved at the voice of him that cried. And the house was filled with smoke. Then said I, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Who did he see? Isaiah saw the glory of, you have capital L, capital O, capital R and D, Jehovah. Isaiah saw the glory of Jehovah. Who did he see? Who did John the Apostle say that he saw? That he saw the Son of God sitting on the throne. That he saw Jesus Christ. Now he wasn't Jesus Christ then. He was the Son of God then. He only became Jesus Christ when he was born on this world or in this world as a baby in Bethlehem. That's when he adopted that name. But Isaiah, John says that Isaiah saw the Son of God sitting on a throne who then came into this world as the arm of God to become Jesus of Nazareth. Isaiah saw the Lord, the God of the universe, on his throne. Who did he see? He saw the Son of God, who has always been God's way of reaching into our world. You see, the Son of God has always been the arm of God. Who do you think walked in the garden with Adam and Eve? Who do you think spoke with Moses from that burning bush? Who do you think had lunch with Abraham and two other angels? Who do you think wrestled with Jacob? Who do you think went before Israel in a pillar of fire and a pillar of smoke? And the list goes on. The Son of God did. You see, God is infinite. God exists throughout all of the universe and beyond and outside of it. But God has a Son. And that Son is the one through whom God interacts with our world. The Son of God is the revelation of a multi-dimensional God operating at an infinite level. But he's made himself in such a way that we can experience him at our level. That's why the Apostle John made such a big deal 
about his experience with Jesus Christ. You know, in 1 John chapter 1, verse 1, John says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the word of life. For the life was manifested, and we have seen it, and bear witness, and show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested unto us. John says, we experienced him. We got to see him and hold him and touch him. God exists as three in one. So that we might come to know and experience him. That is the love of God. God the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. You see, God has made himself a trinity. It was his decision to be like that. Why? So he could interact with his own creation and be known by it on a personal level. We have the hand. We are held. And this is why our salvation is so secure. There's a Father, a Son, and a Holy Ghost. And when we are saved, and the Bible says we are made anew again, we we are given new life, we are new creation. We are held, the Bible says, and Jesus says, in the hand of the Father. We are held in the hand of the Son, the arm of God. And the Bible also says we are sealed with His Holy Spirit. Jesus Himself says, And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. So we have the witness of Isaiah, witness of John the Apostle. But John the Baptist also gives a wonderful insight of the Trinity. When asked about the growing popularity of Jesus compared to his own ministry, you remember John the Baptist came before. He had his own disciples. He was baptizing people. He was uh, um, uh, sharing. Well, he wasn't sharing the gospel in a sense that, that Jesus had not died at that point. But he was telling everyone, get yourself ready. Repent for the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is at hand. He was telling everyone to get ready because the Messiah was coming. But John the Baptist himself, when his disciples came to him and said, uh, uh, this Jesus, the one you proclaimed about, you see, because John the Baptist had already declared Jesus to be the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. And then later on, his disciples uh, came to, John's own disciples came to him and said, "Uh, Master, the Jesus and his disciples are are, are growing more and more. And they're they're, uh, baptizing too over there. Look at John's response to them. Turn to John chapter 3, verse 29. John chapter 3, verse 29. And John gives a wonderful response here. In John 3, 29, when his disciples are worried about his own ministry or their their, their master's ministry, what do we do now? Our, Our ministry is going down. People are leaving this ministry and going towards Jesus. John's response is in John 3, 29, He that hath the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom, which standeth and heareth him, rejoiceth greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This is my joy, therefore is fulfilled. This my joy, therefore, is fulfilled. He must increase, but I must decrease. 
Yeah, John said, and this is where uh, you have to love the guy. He said that he was like the best man for for his best mate getting married. Okay, he was the best man for a friend that was getting married. His job was to help with some preparation work for the for the wedding. He's he was there to help with the the the, the groom. Or the Bible calls it here the bridegroom for that big day. But the important man on that day is the bridegroom. He was just ecstatic, he said, to see that day had come and the bridegroom had arrived. He rightfully recognized that as the best man, even though he was the best man, that he wasn't as important as the groom. And that on that day when the groom arrived, that he was not as important and that he should rightfully decrease in popularity as Jesus increased. I mean, his job is to point to him. His job was to point people to Jesus Christ, tell them to get ready because he's coming. And now he explains why. And have a look at what he says in verse 31. Why does he say that? What's so special about the groom? Well, John the Baptist says... He that cometh from above is above all. He that is of the earth is earthly and speaketh of the earth. He that cometh from heaven is above all. John recognized that Jesus was from above, from heaven, and as such he was above all. He recognized Jesus is above all because he was above all before he came to the earth. Above all, because he was already God in heaven. You see, that term, above all, can only ever be applied to God himself. John knew fully well who Jesus was. And he said, you know what? I speak, I'm of the earth. I was born here. I started here. But he didn't start on the earth. He doesn't even speak of earthly things. He's from heaven. He's, he's from above. And he is above all because he is God. And he continues in verse 32. And he says, And what he hath seen and heard, that he testifieth. And no man receiveth his testimony. Who hath believed their report? Verse 33. He that hath received his testimony hath set to his seal that God is true. So Jesus, as the one above all, was sent with a message and he tells the world what he's seen and what he's heard from heaven with a message that people do not accept. Isaiah said, who hath believed our report? Precisely so. Jesus came with a message from heaven as the arm of God. And who has believed his report? Very, very few. But John the Baptist continues in verse 34. He says, For he whom God hath sent speaketh the words of God. For God giveth not the Spirit by measure unto him. Remember, remember what Jesus is called? Jesus is called the Word of God. God used the Word to create the universe. Jesus John, the, John the, the Apostle says, was with God and was God. 
And here, John the Baptist says, Him who God has sent is speaking the very words of God. And God doesn't give his Holy Spirit to him by measure. That means measureless, in an unlimited way. So God, let, let me see, let's get this, this picture straight that, that John the Baptist is speaking about here. He says, God gives the one who is above all the Holy Spirit in an unlimited fashion. Did you recognize the Trinity in what God is in what John is saying here? God, the un, the one who is above all and the unlimited Holy Spirit all working together in God's saving plan. Here we see the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. God the Father sends the Son into the world to become the Saviour of men. He gives him the Holy Spirit in an unlimited fashion to lead him while he is on the earth. God is working together. All three in one have each a role to play in our salvation. Each of them does a wonderful job. But look at what it says then in verse 35. He says, The Father loveth the Son, and hath given all things into his hand. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. And he that believeth not the Son shall not see life but the wrath of God abideth on him. It's obvious in this passage that the Father is God, where it says the Father loveth the Son, and that he loves the Son, who is also God, because he is above all, and he's granted him the Holy Spirit to fulfill his earthly mission. Believing now in the Son is as important as believing in God himself. He that believeth in the Son hath everlasting life. But if you don't believe the Son, you will not see life and God's wrath abides in you. What is it that I should have to believe in this Son? That he's above all. That he is God in the flesh. If you do not believe in that, then you cannot be saved. It's as important to believe that Jesus Christ is God the Son and if you do not believe that, the Bible says the wrath of God abides on you. The fact that God the Father hath committed all things into the hand of his Son shows a transfer of inheritance and authority from one to another. Jesus explains uh, this handover in chapter 5 of John. Turn with me just there, a moment there as we get an, an explanation of this. John chapter 5 verse 21 says, For as the Father raiseth up the dead and quickeneth them, even so the Son quickeneth whom he will. For the Father judgeth no man, but hath committed all judgment unto the Son. Committed all judgment unto the Son? You mean the Father doesn't judge anymore? No. He's committed all judgment to Jesus Christ, his son, because he suffered and walked a mile, more than a mile, in our shoes. God the Father gave authority for life and death 
to his son, as well as judgment. Why? Because he is now the most qualified to be an impartial judge between God and man. He has become the mediator between God and man. You know why? Because he is both God and man. He can be the perfect intermediate. He can be the perfect mediator, the perfect advocate. With two parties are in opposition to each other. When one is, is at war with the other one, the one that goes in the middle needs to be at least accepted by both sides, correct? Or Jesus is the only one that fits that bill. In order to make peace between God and man, Jesus became both God and man. And so he's able to be the perfect, not just advocate and mediator between both, but he is then finally able to be the perfect judge. You see, not because God was ever unjust or partial, but because man can now never point the finger at God on judgment say on judgment day and say to God you don't understand what i'm going through man can never point the finger at god and say you don't understand me you can't look at the nail prints in the hands and the feet of jesus sitting on that throne as a judge and say You just don't understand. Jesus is the perfect judge. God the Father has committed all judgment to him because he is the perfect person to judge now. He has committed all judgment to the Son because the Son represents both humanity and the Godhead because he is both of those perfectly He went through all the suffering that we went through, but he understands the perfect love and justice and the nature of God because he is God. He is a righteous judge and the giver of life of all that will come to him. And this is why verse 23 is so important in John chapter 5. He says that all men should honour the Son even as they honour the Father. He that honoureth not the Son, honoureth not the Father, which hath sent him. And so the honour that man owes the Son, Jesus Christ, is just as the honour that's owed to God the Father. No difference. If one does not honour the Son, If one does not honour Jesus as God himself, then he does not honour the Father at all. That word honour, some synonyms of that are respect, revere and venerate. So the Bible calls us to revere and venerate Jesus just as you venerate and revere God the Father himself. Because Jesus is God. Jesus is the arm of God. Jesus is above all. And he came from heaven to bring us a message. He came to speak to us about God's plan of salvation while we were sinking in sin, while we were drowning in our own corruption. God rolled up his sleeve, reached down into the world through his son, 
to save sinners like us. And John and Isaiah says, who can believe this report? There are many who have not been able to accept this message. Even those who are very learned in Jesus' day, when he explained it to them, struggled with this idea, struggled with the whole concept of how God would save people. Because everyone has in their mind that somehow you save yourself. You have to work your way to heaven. One of those people that struggled with this whole picture of how God was coming to save us was Nicodemus. In John chapter 3, verse 5, Jesus, uh, he's having a conversation with Nicodemus. Nicodemus had come to him by night and he wanted to understand what this whole thing was about. What, what was Jesus saying? What was his message? And Jesus tells him in verse 5 of John chapter 3, he says, Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, you must be born again. In order to enter the kingdom of God, to be saved, a person must be born, obviously physically, through water, that's a natural birth. But you need to be born spiritually, a supernatural birth, because we're all spiritually dead. Even though we are born as babies, the spirit is not alive. And we have to be born through the power of the Holy Spirit. The two are different, flesh and spirit. That's what it means to be born again. Nicodemus struggled to understand, understand this. So listen to what Jesus tells him in verse 12 of John 3. He says, If I have told you earthly things, things that pertain to man, and you believe not, how shall you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? And no man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man, which is in heaven. Now get your head around that verse. If you can get your head around verse 13 of John chapter 3, then you've done very well. Jesus says, I've come down from heaven with a message. And I'm only telling you earthly things about humans and, and, how, and how salvation uh, works with you. What about if I'm telling you what stuff, what I see, what, what's going on in heaven? And Jesus says, no man's ever been to heaven except him who came down from heaven. But then he had something strange at the end. He says, the son of man, which is him, which is in heaven, in, while he was talking to Nicodemus on the earth. <laughs> Nicodemus um, probably struggled even more after that. While he's telling Nicodemus about salvation, Jesus gives him another nugget of truth. Jesus says up to that point, no one had been to heaven. There was no one that had been to heaven to that point. No man had entered heaven. Only him who came down from heaven. The Son of God was in heaven while he was on the earth. Bit too hard to grasp? I don't blame you. What it means, though, is that Jesus was still God 
and fully God, even while he walked on the earth as fully man. Meanwhile, the Holy Spirit would be the one to give birth to us spiritually when we were born again. Once again, the Bible describes God as a trinity. But it's still beyond our comprehension. How can Jesus be in heaven while he's with Nicodemus? Because he never stopped being God. Even though God reached into this world through his son, his son was still perfectly connected with his father in heaven while he walked the earth. That's because God is a father, God is the son, and God is the Holy Ghost. So let me ask you today, how many gods are there? There is one. How many saviors are there? There is only one. But he exists as Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. And let me close with this verse, which I hope will leave you thrilled. Acts chapter 20, verse 26 to 28. I'm going to close with this now, and I hope you've, you've enjoyed this message today. But I want to hit you this, because this is like a knockout punch. Okay? Acts chapter 20, verse 26. The Apostle Paul is telling uh, uh, the believers that he is, he's told them everything that he's had to tell them. He hasn't held back. So Acts chapter 20, verse 26 says, Wherefore, I take you to record this day, write this down, that I am pure from the blood of all men. Your blood is not on my hands if you do the wrong thing now. Verse 27 says, For I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. Everything that God had told him to share, He's shared. He's let them know. And now he's telling the leaders before he goes, he's saying, take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over, over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. Do you see the Trinity there? But well, let me ask you a question. He's asked the leaders of the church to feed the church of God, which he has purchased with his own blood. When did God bleed? Now you should know the answer to that one. There's your Trinity. God bless you all. I pray you've um, been blessed with this message today. Remember always, always that God shed his own blood so that you and I might be saved. If you have not come to Jesus for salvation, then you are not saved. You have not seen life. Remember, we have been called to honour him as we honour God the Father. Receive Jesus today. Repent of sin Turn from it and allow Jesus to take you by the hand and to lift you up from the ocean of sin. God bless you all. May you have a wonderful week.